Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> Maybe in Solano, in Solano County. County. Here we come. <laughs> California forever, baby. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, are billionaires taking over our politics? We dig into the ongoing political plays by tech and finance elites in the Bay Area, from San Francisco to Solano County. With us to discuss all of this is Gil Duran. He's a journalist who recently wrote about these issues for The New Republic, and he previously worked in politics, including for the late Dianne Feinstein and former Governor Jerry Brown. Gil Duran, welcome back to The Breakdown. Hey, Gil. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. I think I was last on in 2018. Well, we are happy to have you. You've been uh, tearing it up in the uh, pages of the New Republic talking about all this money flowing into various different uh, initiatives. And let's start out in Solano County. Um, we all started hearing about this. Well, I guess I guess people started hearing about this in in kind of vague ways several years ago, but there have been about 60,000 acres of farmland in Solano County bought up, uh, I think nearly $800 million poured into them um, by a bunch of tech and finance elites who are proposing a city, a new city on this farmland. They're going to put it up for a vote uh, in the fall. Uh, talk about a little bit about like what we know about this plan, Gil, and like what, what they're asking people to vote on. Well, this group called Flannery Associates, which was a front group for a, a group of billionaire investors, snuck around for five years buying up rural land in Solano County, in many cases vastly overpaying for the land and creating quite a buzz and a feeding frenzy. And finally, it emerged in the New York Times last summer that this was a group of, you know, consisting of these billionaire investors and that their plan was to build a, a new city, potentially of up to 400,000 residents. Uh, in rural Solano County, south of Vacaville, and sort of uh, northwest of Rio Vista. Of course, this caused a great uproar because nobody knew about that. And this is a place where they have laws that are designed to keep this kind of growth from uh, taking place in the rural area. So uh, now we are going to see it uh, go to the ballot in November. Uh, and the billionaires are going to pour a lot of money into trying to force this newfangled city onto the people of Solano County. And so what exactly are they going to be putting on the ballot? What will people there be voting on? It'll be a measure that will uh, allow them to amend the local laws to build the city. Right now, there's a slow growth ordinance. So it'd be uh, allowing the project to uh, go past, go forward despite the slow growth ordinance. So we need buy-in from 
uh, Solano County voters in order to do this. And so we're seeing a, a lot of money from the billionaires and their supporters being lavished on the community, basically trying to butter everyone up and buy support for this ballot measure because of what, like $900 million has been invested in buying the land. Yeah, and they have to rezone it. But I mean, let's talk about this. So I, devil's advocate here, we need housing in California. There, you know, there's an Air Force base out there, but it is a lot of farmland. Um, why shouldn't we just see this as a sort of altruistic attempt to help the state create a new community um, in an area that desperately needs housing and always could use jobs? Well, billionaires by definition are not altruistic. There are people who hoard lavish amounts of wealth beyond what they will ever need and are a never-ending race to hoard more and more. And what got me interested in, in this, I was sort of ignoring this. It was in the background. I'd heard about it, a lot going on in the world right now. Wasn't too concerned about Solano County. But then I came across a book called Crack Up Capitalism by Quinn Slobodian, who's a historian. And it detailed this whole ideology by which the ultra-wealthy now want to create their own territories, create their own cities that they can govern in some fashion on their own. And that really kind of clued me in. And the more I looked at the list of investors, they all have some kind of interlocking connections to the people behind this ideology. And so that's when I got interested in writing about it as a potential version of what's called the network state, which is a new form of territory that's privately governed and controlled mostly by billionaires. Is this kind of a local version of what Larry Ellison did by buying Lanai in Hawaii and Mark Zuckerberg buying a huge chunk of Kauai? Uh, or is it, I know you seem to be describing it as more sinister. Well, I think anything that kind of deprives the public and, and undermines democracy is a little bit sinister, especially when it's coming from people who have benefited so much from the society and from our democracy. Um, in the past, you saw billionaires trying to buy their own islands and you have Mark Zuckerberg digging this bunker in Hawaii. And, and it was an idea that Peter Thiel had to create nations floating out on oil rigs or on cruise ships. But it turns out actually that's kind of boring and lonely and weird, right? You're gonna be like Howard Hughes out there floating around while the rest of the world passes you by. The more premium option is to actually control a wide swath of territory that is still connected and that enjoys a good deal of political, social, and economic power in an existing uh, sphere where there is actual civilization. And so I think uh, I chart in the story that I wrote in The New Republic, which was about high-tech secession, uh, this sort of drifting of the idea from ships at sea and uh, islands and, and oil rigs to finding places on land. And they're actually trying to build these cities right now all over the world, in uh, Latin America, in Europe, in the Middle East. Uh, there's a city called Praxis that some billionaires are trying to build somewhere in the Mediterranean. So it's an idea that's really uh, gaining speed pretty quickly. And the Atlantic actually just had another big story about it, detailing some of these efforts in other places to build these cities. So yeah. I don't think it's definitive, but I think I hadn't seen anybody ask that question yet. Is this part of the network state idea and ideology? And I don't know why you would buy $900 million worth of land and build a new city in a place with no water rights in a county where they have a slow growth ordinance. And um, I've seen real estate developers quoted saying anybody who does this for a business would not go about doing it this way. So there's something a little suspicious about the approach and about the intent and uh, so it's going to be a big referendum on billionaire power in Solano County. 
uh, in November and, and in San Francisco as well. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I do want to ask, like, a lot of the way that this Solano County proposal has been pitched is to sort of make a more equitable society. And I think that's something we hear a lot from the tech industry, that their products, that the things they're working on are aimed at kind of making something accessible to everybody, not to make a plutocracy or, you know, some sort of autocratic new uh, government. I mean, is there any evidence in what we're seeing proposed in Solano County that this could be a more sort of equitable place to live or or, or is there a governance structure that they've proposed? Like, because a lot of what you're writing about here really is this idea that people kind of just buy into an idea and there kind of isn't government, I guess. Well, it's kind of a corporate government, right? It's government by those who own it. It's sort of a private zone. It's not completely, totally divorced from the idea of building a, a gated community or, um, you know, an, a, a company suburb. But uh, it's just suspicious that you would go about it in this way, in a place where nobody wants it, and in a place where you're going to have to fight for natural resources that are already scarce. And so I think that there, to some degree, is the answer to whether this is some idea of an equitable utopia. If we were going to have uh, utopia being churned out by Silicon Valley, I think we'd be tasting some of the fruits of that by now. Instead, it seems to me like there's more and more tents and more and more billionaires. And I think there must be some kind of connection. It's, but you know, go, go ahead. Go ahead. You don't really see them trying to solve that problem. <laughs> you know, they see them trying to solve every other problem. Uh, the solution for poverty appears to be cages. If you're a billionaire. Well, actually, let me just, uh, since you've sort of invoked that idea, uh, you know, there is somebody like Mark Benioff from Salesforce, who was one of the leading advocates for raising taxes in San Francisco. And we don't want to go too deeply into San Francisco right now. But just in general, I mean, they're not all, I mean, George Soros, you know, is also a billionaire. They're, you know, it's not just all one kind of ideology. Yeah, there are a few, right? But this new crop of Elon Musk mini-me's is pretty aggressively to the right and pretty angry for some reason about how things have gone in society, even though they seem to have more than everyone else. Um, I often wonder when you see some of these people being so angry on Twitter and, and uh, you know, on the attack against every group imaginable. Uh, if you're so angry and you have billions of dollars, how do you think it feels to be poor in this country? You know, how do you think it feels to be struggling to pay your bills and wondering if your kids are going to be able to go to college? You know, what entitles these billionaires to their anger? So there are some people like Benioff, like Soros. Uh, there was Tom Steyer who was trying to do a lot of good for a while. Um, but I think we're seeing this new crop of billionaires get produced in the model of Elon Musk. And they are not necessarily concerned with uh, finding a more progressive solution to society's ills. They're quite the opposite. They seem to think that uh, they'll get what they want more quickly under a more right-leaning governmental structure. And so we're seeing this thin veil of moderation and equity, but in their behaviors and in their actions, we see that they don't really reflect that kind of philosophy or mentality. All right. Well, that is a great uh, place to pivot. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation talking about tech billionaires' influence in politics with journalist Gil Duran. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today, Gil Duran, former editorial page editor of the San Francisco Examiner and Sacramento Bee. He's been writing about the political moves of tech and finance billionaires. Uh, you can find his work, recent work in The New Republic. All right. So, Gil, let's talk about San Francisco politics. There was a huge report out uh, just this week by The Guardian and Mission Local, uh, sort of trying to map a lot of this spending in San Francisco. Um, and they found that just six prominent people in tech and venture capital have spent nearly $6 million in recent years in local politics. They pledged to spend a lot more. And there's some ties between the people pushing these kind of network states you were laying out at the top and the folks playing big in SF politics. Uh, how do you see what they're doing? I mean, what are they doing? I guess is the best question. What do they want? Why are they spending this money? Well, there was a moment when it seemed like the message was everyone's going to leave California and leave San Francisco and go to Miami and go to Austin. Elon Musk made a big deal out of it, got a lot of coverage. But they seem to have doubled back and decided that actually they're going to stay here. Not only are they going to stay here, but they're going to take control of government. They're going to rule San Francisco. And so we've seen this big push, a lot of money flooding in, new nonprofits and pressure groups forming to start pushing this sort of political message that progressives and Democrats have, progressive Democrats have ruined San Francisco, and we have to kind of return to the policies of the past in order to clean everything up, get, get rid of homelessness, and solve all the problems miraculously. Uh, apparently, since nobody in California politics has wanted to do that ever. And so uh, the tech bros can just pull it off with a snap of their fingers. This seems to be the, the proposition that uh, voters will be facing in San Francisco on the 2024 ballot. Well, even before that, I mean, they did some of these same folks got involved in the recall of the DA, the progressive DA, yeah. Chesa Boudin, recall of some of the school board members. I mean, a lot of this was happening during COVID. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, like, do you see them as creating a movement or just tapping into a sentiment that's, you know, pretty widely held? I mean, there was just a poll out this week uh, that the Chamber of Commerce did. You know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with where the city is heading. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's definitely, I mean, there's a lot of dissatisfaction where a lot of cities are heading, right? One thing that I always think that the the big doom stories about San Francisco get wrong is it's not just San Francisco. You look at almost any big city in America and every big city in California, you're seeing the same problems, not in the exact proportions, but the homelessness, the drug addiction, 
uh, certain kinds of crime on the rise. And so somehow it got turned into during the recall, it was all about Chase Boudin being the DA, though he'd been there for about five minutes, uh, got rid of Chase Boudin. It didn't magically erase all crime, but sort of drunk on the success of that recall, there's a new plan, which is to take over uh, City Hall. And I think to your point, Scott, it's more like exploiting the existing dissatisfaction and pouring a lot of money in to try to channel that dissatisfaction in a very specific direction. Uh, I'm not really sure they'll be able to pull it off. San Francisco just put a lot of these people in office, you know, and having dealt with voters for a long time in politics, you might be surprised what voters say and what voters do and how they can be very different sometimes, frustratingly so. But uh, we're definitely going to see an unprecedented effort here to move the needle, as they say. Well, I mean, some of these folks, like I'm thinking about Gary Tan of Y Combinator, he got a lot of uh, flack recently for essentially um, uh, putting on X, formerly Twitter, uh, saying that he wished a slow death on progressive supervisors. Um, Can you tie what you're talking about here when we talk about like this, like the idea of of a parallel like media structure or governance structure? Um, You say that's not actually what they're doing. They want an entirely new landscape. And you use X as an example and Elon Musk and kind of how he's turned that on his head. Talk about that a little. Well, these tech types, they talk a lot about creating a parallel, a parallel society, a parallel media, a parallel political machine. And sort of what that means is a parallel means something they control and that services their ends and does as they say. And uh, Gary Tan, in pointing to his vision for San Francisco, pointed to Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter as a, vi- as a victory for this movement toward parallel media. And if you look at what that means in the context of what must be the Twitter I think another word is useful, mirror. Uh, Naomi Klein talks about the creation of all these sort of mirror worlds now where things are the exact opposite of what they say they are. You have people who are on the left who are now on the right, people who are propagandists calling themselves journalists. This all these reversals going on where uh, you do the opposite of what was already happening. So w- what Elon did with Twitter was take it from being somewhere where people get information, where people who were experts or recognized for their expertise or their identities had blue checks, and turn it into a place where now the people with the blue checks are all a bunch of anonymous yahoos who pay a few bucks a month to Elon Musk, and journalists don't have uh, anything to distinguish them from the trolls. And so the idea is to turn everything on its head and to empower and lift up voices that uh, are pushing a really extreme right leaning ideology. That's what I think they mean by parallel. Well, let me ask uh, a bit about that, because, you know, San Francisco, you know, by any real reasonable definition is a very liberal city still. Um, And, you know, I think back to the 1970s and 80s, Feinstein was mayor. And, you know, the power centers then were downtown. It was the B of A. It was Chevron, Wells Fargo, The Gap, Schwab. And so I'm wondering, and a lot of those CEOs were Republicans. Uh, And I'm wondering, like, what's different, like, now? How is what was happening then different from what you see happening now? In many ways, it's just the latest attempt to kind of crush the progressive part of San Francisco. It's part of an ongoing, long battle that goes way, 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 way back to, you know, when Dianne Feinstein was on the Board of Supervisors, there were these battles. Harvey Milk, right, was part of the new vanguard of more progressive Uh, leadership in San Francisco. What's different, I think, is that these folks have a lot more money to pour into creating their own media, their own, you know, huge campaigns. And I think the other thing that's different now, 
is that I think it's pretty extreme to push for a raft of proposals that we know have already failed. You know, they seem to favor mass incarceration, heavy policing, video surveillance, and they're very much against harm reduction or overdose prevention, which are the proven solutions for the overdose crisis we have on our streets. And so I think maybe 30, 40 years ago, Republicans still thought their ideas were the right ideas that can work. But if you look at the policies that these people like Gary Tan are pushing or these groups that he's funding are pushing, uh, they're all Republican policies. And if you look at where crime rates are the highest, uh, tend to be the highest, it's in Republican states. If you look at where overdose rates are the highest, it's in Republican states. So if Republican ideas work, why are things worse in Republican states? And so that, I think, makes it more extreme. These are people who are supposed to be innovative, futuristic, forward thinkers, and there is no rational defense for their ideas. These are retrograde ideas based in a very conservative version of morality that will lead to a lot of more people getting hurt and a lot more people dying. So, OK, let me ask you this then. Do you think that it's fair to say that these are moderates? I mean, a lot of the folks behind this, I'm thinking of someone like David Sachs, um, are really libertarians, right? I mean, they're uh, where they stand. He, he supported Ron DeSantis, for example, for governor. Um, he's taken a very sort of skeptical line on Ukraine. I mean, is this even is this even a takeover of moderates? Well, the thing I've been working on a piece actually with Dr. George Lakoff on the meaning of the word moderate. Um, there's no such thing as a moderate ideology. There's no one ideology that all moderates agree on. Moderate means you're conservative on some things and you're progressive on other things. And so what I see is not really a lot of moderation. I see the term moderate used because in San Francisco, you can't say Republican, you can't say conservative. Um, and so it's not really moderate. I do think there are moderates in San Francisco and they think they're being kind of forced to choose between the very progressive left here because politics was already polarized before these guys got here. As we all know, it's very, very divided up a lot of different uh, camps and groups. But I do think the word moderate is being misused a lot because I think a lot of people don't really understand how ideology works. And, mm -hmm. But if you look at their, the main bulk of their proposals, those are Republican policy proposals. And as to Sachs being libertarian, I would say one good thing I could say about libertarians is they oppose the drug war. Can't say the same for Sachs, right? These guys really want to go after the addicted people on the streets, which is kind of funny because it seems like a lot of Silicon Valley is using a lot of drugs. So <laughs> the message there is that it's okay for rich people to use drugs. It's not okay for poor people used to use drugs. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> Maybe in Solano, in Solano County. County. Here we come. <laughs> California forever, baby. <laughs> hey, so uh, coming back to San Francisco, um, there's a bit, I see a bit of an irony here because, you know, London Breed is a moderate, you know, by San Francisco standards. She's been supported by a lot of these folks. And yet they're so unhappy with the way the city is going. And her I mean, allies and she have been in charge for Yeah, she's been in charge. And then the people who are running against her are also moderates in, in many cases. Mark Farrell just jumped in, investment banker. So, like, what are they complaining about, really? Because their person is running the city. Well, that's where the propaganda shines through, right? As far as I can realize, the, uh, as I can figure it as an expert on propaganda who studied these things, um, their whole deal is to take a problem, blame it on progressives and claim that moderates can do better, ignoring the fact that moderates have had a tremendous amount of power here. They have a moderate mayor and they're pretty amateur at politics because if you want to run a change election, it's really hard to do that by saying we also want to keep the person who's been the mayor for six years in there. They really need to pick 
another horse in that race and have a whole new slate. But um, so it's all kind of kind of mixed up and backward. But again, going back to that mirror world parallel thing, it's a parallel reality where the progressives are to blame for everything. And we saw them do that with Chase Boudin. We're seeing them do that now with Dean Preston. Uh, it's moving over to Oakland now, where Shang Thao has been in uh, office as mayor of Oakland for five minutes. And now they're trying to recall her. Uh, going against Pamela Price, who... Uh, the DA, yeah. ...has problems, but has only barely been there. We're getting to this point, though, where with all these recalls, we're, we're having a very unstable system here. We elect somebody and then we pull them out of office. And this is chaos. It's not. I mean, and that is under. Yeah, that is undermining the democratic system. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today, journalist Gil Duran. This is a fundraising period for KQED. For more information on how to support us, go to kqed.org slash donate. I mean, but to your point. So, I mean, that's an interesting point. So, like, is that. Is that a feature, not a bug? This idea of like recalls sort of shaking the very, you know, basis of this democratic system. Um, I mean, on the other hand, though, we do have a lot of problems, right, Gil? I mean, you can't like you can't say that all of our elected leaders, well, they, whether they be moderates or progressives, have solved them. So, I mean, what's wrong with running candidates against Dean Preston, for example? Oh, no, it's fine. Someone to show always run. Someone should always run. There should always be a debate over an office when it's open. I'm just saying that blaming a democratic socialist who's barely been around for a few years and claiming that the democratic moderates who've always controlled the city are somehow not to blame, but this one guy is, is, is total BS. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we're, I almost see it as becoming almost like a religious movement, the recall religion. Everything is worse than ever when it's actually not. Some things are worse. Some things are better. Um, we must sacrifice a progressive politician on the altar of our anger, and then the moderate messiah will return to save us, you know, and this is the, the kind of template being pushed and people I know and respect, who I've always thought of as intelligent, are telling me things I can't believe, like huh. crime is worse than ever. It's not, you know. I wonder if this is it's a little bit out of left field here, but this is in some ways, and this is a question, a kind of a reaction to rank choice voting. Because, you know, when you have a recall, it's just yes or no on a particular person. Whereas with ranked choice, you know, I mean, Chesa Boudin got a lot of second place votes from Nancy Tung, who was fairly conservative, and, you know, Pamela Price as well over in the East Bay, Shang Tao. So I don't know. I mean, is it like they're looking for sort of this alternative way of, of running a democracy? It's like, oh, we'll just, you know, have a different set of questions for voters via the recall. I definitely think that's created a massive structural problem which is that you can get in via ranked choice voting, but then you can get yanked out very easily by a majority because most people will not have remembered voting for you, mm. right? So it's easy to put the blame on you and they didn't actually vote for you because you were number two and number three. This is one place where I break from the progressives. I've never been a supporter of ranked choice voting. I think voting is hard enough for most people, complicated enough for most people, and we should let it be simple majority. But now people have figured out a way to rep weaponize recalls in order to undermine ranked choice voting. And... I think the cleaner thing to do, and I think that's being talked about in Oakland, is then let's have a referendum on ranked choice voting. Hmm. Let's see if that's still what people want, because otherwise we're going to have what's been called hyper democracy, where we're constantly changing our minds 
every other year and nothing can get done because whoever gets in office has about five minutes to try to do something before they get recalled or or, uh, or pulled out of office. So that's no way to run a society. And even the, the ancient Greeks knew that. All right. Just a few minutes left. But I'm curious, like, what do you see as sort of the practical short term impacts? I mean, we've seen we mentioned those recalls. We've seen we have a couple of uh, supervisors race in San Francisco where Grow SF and some of these other groups funded by these billionaires uh, do have candidates. And there's also a challenge to some sitting judges. Um, I mean, are those the races where you see the rubber meeting the road? Or do you have any sense of what could be the sort of next step in this? Well, I think it will depend on whether they win or whether they lose. You know, San Francisco is small potatoes compared to Sacramento. And if you really want to rule something and get some power, then you got to take the capital. You know, we saw Silicon Valley try that with Meg Whitman back in the day. Uh, the money didn't quite work. She was a different breed of tech person, but still some of those Republican ideas were there, didn't fly with the voters. They made a lot of the same arguments they're making now. Um, and so I think it will depend on whether they succeed or whether they fail. If they fail, I don't assume they'll go away. I feel they'll try again, maybe with less cursing and death threats on Twitter. Um, because there's a, you know, rich people have wielded power for a long time on our politics, but you generally don't do that kind of thing. Uh, you save it for the VIP room at the, at the fundraiser. But to your point, I think the bigger takeaway is that California cities do have serious problems. I'm starting to think that California cities have become ungovernable. And that's a big verdict against the establishment Democrats who've been ruling the state for quite a long time. And to be clear, I spent a lot of my career as a part of that establishment. And this should be a wake-up call that this is really fertile ground for all kinds of weird political propaganda games that may not be able to take power here, but will definitely impress upon people across the nation that the Democratic Party has no future. Uh, just real quick, like what do you, what do they have to show for all this at this point? I mean, yeah, they got rid of the DA, but the, you know what? Wh how what? What's the return on the money? Oh, uh, I think they're selling the idea that they can take power. It's a it's a referendum on that, right? There are no results. They're trying to say now that the problems have been solved. They haven't been, but I think it's about whether they can take power, and then after that. They'll see what's next. That was journalist Gil Duran. You can read his new work in The New Republic. Thanks for being here, Gil. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.